as I grow older, obviously, and uh, face an uncertain future as far as health is concerned, or even my time in this world, or my ability to continue pastoring, that's in God's hands. It may be years, it may be very short. Uh, we just don't know. But I have uh, <clears throat> a driving desire, and I believe it's one that's biblically founded, and that uh, even as patterned by the Apostle Paul. When you read the Apostle Paul, you find that his great burden was to establish the gospel, the gospel itself, which was subject to quite a few attacks, and still is, of course, and to be modifications that would deceive the hearts of men. And um, I was thinking, we're going to look in Romans 3, by the way. I was thinking that when Paul wrote this epistle to the Romans, they had been saved by God's grace. He addresses them as the called of Jesus Christ. They were called to be saints, to be set apart unto God through Christ in him and by his cross. And yet when he comes, he says that he desires to preach the gospel unto them in Romans chapter 1. Uh, the Corinthians, of course, they were in danger. They were in danger of losing the gospel because of the warfare and the subtleties that were being brought against them. Of course, you remember Paul says to them, I determine not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. His desire was that their faith would stand not in the wisdom of, of men, but in the power of God. So he writes, as in 1 Corinthians 15, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand. You see, uh, that gospel is necessarily to be proclaimed in the assembly of the saints. I was reading something from Martin Lloyd Jones, and uh, Martin Lloyd Jones says that he was raised in a church where much was taught to the believers, much was given to them, but he was unsaved, and the gospel was not set forth, and Christ was not put in everything as he should have been. And so uh, one day God, by his grace, opened his heart and saved him when that gospel was proclaimed. There are certain things that we can be askew on, need to grow in, as far as our knowledge of God and his word. The gospel must be established firmly. It must be clearly understood. It must be embraced with understanding by the congregation so that even then when another pastor is called, there will be the discernment of his preaching, whether it is the gospel that God gave in his word. And the establishment of that is very important. That's why it's preached over and over again in various forms in the scripture by the apostles. And in that regard, if you're going to understand the gospel, if you're going to understand the salvation of God, you've got to understand something very important about the fall of man in the garden. The way you comprehend sin, the way that is understood and 
what it did to the human race is essential to the gospel and to the preaching of the gospel. And so I was reading something from Rolf Barnard. Rolf Barnard, of course, uh, an evangelist, now with the Lord, a mightily used of God uh, in the proclamation of the truth when very many knew what we term the doctrines of grace, but he did and could get into sometimes large churches and caused a lot of times a great deal of warfare because he would preach that truth. But many were, as it were, shaken to God and his truth under his ministry. And uh, I was reading something. It doesn't take long to read. What happened in the garden? A cure is not likely to be found if we have no knowledge of the disease. If a man is nearsighted, he not only needs corrective glasses, but if he is blind, he needs the miracle of sight. If a man is sick, he only needs medical aid, but if he is dead, he needs the miracle of life. If man has only strayed from the way, he needs directions. But if he is completely lost, he needs to be found. Here is the question to be settled by preachers and people. What happened in the garden? When one feels obliged to come to some conclusions on the subjects of election, irresistible grace and particular redemption, it would be wise for him to first determine the condition of the sinner who is to be saved. If man was only wounded by the fall, he needs assistance. If he is dead in sins, he needs to be resurrected, and that by the purpose and power of the God of life. If fallen man still has his moral ability and power of choice, then let us wait for him to choose and seek God. But if he loves darkness and will not come to Christ, then Christ must love and come to him. I thought that was good. Brief, but a good statement. I want to read to you from Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 9. And uh, we'll read through verse 24. In Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 9, What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit, the poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. 
destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, and the end of verse 25, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just, and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. In verse 22, the apostle declares that among men, as sinners, there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. One of the most important words that should be, of course, in our Christian vocabulary is that word grace. Grace. By grace are you saved. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation is to the praise of the glory of God's grace. But I fear that Grace, in the biblical sense, is rather one of the least understood words. It is man's natural inclination, and that due to human pride, to think that he or she, in some way, must add something. There must be some merit, no matter how small, in order for God to save them or to save one. Statements are made. Statements that are totally foreign to the meaning of grace in the word of God, completely foreign to scripture. Statements actually preached, I heard in time past in my own course, like God has done everything he can do. Now it's all up to you. Is that what we're taught in Scripture? That salvation is resting in the hands of man? Few understand the huge meaning of grace because they do not understand what sin has done to all men by nature. 
They don't comprehend the spiritual devastation of sin in the human race. And until it's understood that sin has robbed of all spiritual ability, it's not going to be understood that salvation is all of God, that it's all of grace, that it's all to the praise of the glory of His grace. In spite of the truth that clearly revealed in Scripture is that the mercy of God is not bestowed because of the human will. Men will still cling to a free will gospel and salvation. Even though, as we learn in Scripture, as in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Or, as in Romans 9.16, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God. Long ago in the book of Jonah, those five words, salvation is of the Lord, rang out. And they're still true. Salvation is of the Lord. In spite of the revealed truth that grace alone, apart from any human merit whatsoever, is only bestowed upon those, quote, chosen to salvation, men still preach that it comes by human choice. The Apostle Paul in this epistle sets that forth clearly. In Romans 11, he speaks of a remnant that shall be saved among the Jews. He says, even so, then at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. God said back in the prophecy of Isaiah, that had he not left a small remnant, none of them would be saved. That remnant, they were no better by nature than their brethren. It was God's electing mercy that saved them. If by grace, it's no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. If it be of works, no more grace. Otherwise, grace, that's not grace. Clearly, in Scripture, salvation is by grace alone. Grace only. Blessed the day when those who by grace, sovereign grace, have truly, savingly believed on Jesus Christ, when they come to understand that that faith given them in Him is God's gift not something worked up by their human constitution. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Blessed the day when those who bow in faith to Jesus Christ and turn their backs upon sin and find that denial of self is death to self 
by participation in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ when they come to understand that grace brought repentance to salvation and that their repentance didn't bring grace. The grace of God that bringeth salvation we learn of in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. Grace has been described in this way. It is not merely a free gift, but a gift to those who deserve the opposite and is given to us while we were without hope and without God in the world. I mentioned earlier Martin Lloyd-Jones. That was his quote. So we're going to consider this wondrousness of grace in salvation. Amazing grace. John Newton, who wrote that, knew exactly the same truth that we here expound this morning. In order, we know, for one to be in a right standing with God, they must have a perfect righteousness. God is infinitely holy, just. He's a God of love, but he's a God of wrath as well. He's a God of judgment as well as a God of mercy. And for one to have a right standing before him, they must possess a perfect righteousness. It's called the righteousness of God in Romans, in Scripture. It's a righteousness that is not produced, worked by man. It comes by faith in Christ and by faith in Christ alone. It comes to those who neither merit it nor do they have any ability in themselves to produce it. There is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All men, all being in Adam, are sinners by nature, have inherited that sin nature. It belongs to the human race. And it makes it impossible to attain to the glory of God by any human works whatsoever. There will always be a coming short of the glory of God. When Adam fell and the human race fell in him, the moral image of God was marred and lost in man. Oh yes, still have a reasonable soul, still have abilities and capacities God gives in birth, for instance. But the moral image of God was defaced. And all who are born into this world are born as sinners by nature. Long ago, Job, in Job chapter 14, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? 
not one. Long ago, the wise man Solomon, there's not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Ecclesiastes 7 verse 20. That was from his observation as well. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And in sin, man lost the moral image of God. Adam fell from his glory. What did his glory consist of? His glory consisted in being created in the image of God. To have the glory of God is to be in his image. As in redemption and regeneration, there is a renewal in the image of God. We've studied that in Colossians. We have it in Scripture, taught in the epistles. The glory of God in the saved is only brought to its fullness when the saints are finally conformed to the full image of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Or of whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. Glorification in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, in the great apostasy that's taught there, that began in the days of the apostles and only increases, there were those who believed the lie. The apostle Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, We're bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth, whereunto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The trials, the difficulties, the hard things that now take place in the Christian's course are all moving and having their work toward something wonderful. So the apostle says in Romans 8, verse 18, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. What marred the moral image of God in man? Sin. Sin marred that image, causing us to lose the glory of God by nature, to be separated from God, to be at enmity with the living God, wanting to be our own gods, and thus to lose the glory of God, which was man's original position in creation. That no member of Adam's race can, by his or own, her own works, attain to the righteousness which God requires apart from which the glory of God's image 
cannot be present is shown not in what we would consider the worst of men. Oh, sure it is. But even in the best of men. Even in men who attain to the highest positions in this world of power. Even to men who in their fields excel. Even to those who are benevolent with mankind. The scripture says something incredible in Psalm 95, uh, Psalm 39, verse 5. Not man at his worst state. Man at his best state is altogether vanity. Isn't that an incredible verse? You see, men like to look at others and think, boy, they're really something. They're sinners. Apart from Christ, they're as big a sinner as anybody in the world. Even God's people of old. You remember Job? <laughs> Job, of course. God called Job my servant. <laughs> my servant Job. Told the old adversary, look, there's not a man in the earth like him. Right? But what happened when Job was in the presence of the living God? What does he exclaim? Behold, I am vile. In the presence of God, in the blaze of the holiness of God. And that's the first thing the sinner is confronted with. When conviction comes, they know that God is holy. That he's just. That he's a just judge. I think some of the old Puritans put it like this. Wrath is led into the soul. Wrath is led into the soul. That must take place if one is ever to be saved by God's wondrous grace. They must come to recognize what they are and own it. In the presence of God, in the blaze of his holiness, it was his own servant, his prophet Isaiah, who exclaims in Isaiah chapter 6 that he is vile. I am undone. I am undone, a man of unclean lips. The closer we get to the living God, the more our vileness shows up. was a Daniel. Daniel is called a man greatly beloved, loved by his God. A man who was given incredible wisdom. In the presence of the Lord, what does he see himself as? What does he find in himself? He painfully declares in Daniel chapter 10, my comeliness was turned in me into corruption. And I retained no strength. You see, in the presence of God, sometimes when we come to recognize and 
grieve and mourn over the fact of sin found in us, that's a pretty good thing, pretty good indication of God's grace. That's why the believer comes to hate sin, loathe it, to love God's right ways, and yet it still dwells in him or her. They still war against it. It's the most grievous thing there is to them. And they have to cry out, Behold, I am vile in myself. Everything that looked good in me, no, in the presence of God, looked pretty bad. It's absolutely necessary that you know, that you admit, I have sinned. I have come short of the glory of God. An incisive observation was made by another. If the first chapters of Romans mean anything to us, they have shown that spiritually there is no difference between us and the most destitute of persons. As far as God's requirements are concerned, there is no difference between us and the most desperate or disrespectable character in history. Until we know that in God's sight there is no difference between us and even the wildest profligate, we cannot be saved. Quite a statement, isn't it? Quite a statement. When God does a convicting work, it withers. It brings great sorrow. It brings the realization of what we are by nature. That we need to see taking place in our day. If we ever have an awakening, that's where it's going to begin in men. There is no true understanding. There is no true appreciation of the true grace of God unless you begin here. For you and I have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Why is it that the believer grieves and finds such trouble and sometimes tormenting thoughts over past sin? And so, vehemently resists sin and fights against it. How sorrowful. Even God's people, writing to the Corinthians, they had to be brought to repentance, sorrowed to repentance. They were already saved. They were already God's people. But we don't repent just once. We find sorrow for sin and repentance often taking place in us. Do we not as God's people? When we're conscious of it. Due to sin. A horrendous thing. 
due to sin. All are void of any ability to meet God's standard. Thus always come short of obtaining His glory. Always. Sin not only robbed us of the image of God, it removes us from God. It separates us from God. Your sins have separated between you and your God. So spiritually devastated that it left us without any strength to do anything at all about it. There's no desire for things that are holy by the natural man. He desires the things that please his flesh. Can easily be led into the grossest of immoralities and so forth. A slave to the lusts of his flesh. Sin devastated us. It's no marvel that there are those who can't hear, no effect upon them, under the greatest of preaching. Not mine. <laughs> the Lord's own. The Lord of glory had to say to some in John 8, verse 43, I do not understand my speech. Even because you cannot hear my word. The Lord Jesus says to a teacher in Israel, no doubt a highly esteemed member of the Sanhedrin, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus didn't understand the kingdom of God. Nicodemus did not comprehend the rule of God over all things. Nicodemus could not comprehend the rule of God in the regenerate. Because he was not born of God, at least not yet. Cannot see it. Cannot comprehend it. The natural man is tied to this world. His desires are here. This is it. The natural man is incapable of spiritual understanding. We marvel sometimes that there are those under the clearest of preaching they can't comprehend it. They don't desire it. They don't want it. They'd rather be anywhere else than under the ministry of the word of God. We should not marvel at it. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, their foolishness to it. Neither can he know them, because they're spiritually discerned. That is, he has no ability to know them by nature. That's what sin has done to one. And that foolish there has also a meaning of, means nothing to him. Sin didn't simply wound us. It didn't simply make us sick. It killed us 
spiritually. It killed us. Dead in trespasses and sins, as in Ephesians 2.1. So left to ourselves, what hope is there of recovery? If left to ourselves, there is no hope of recovery. Blessed the day when we're brought to the consciousness and the conviction of sin against God and God only. That what we've done didn't simply hurt somebody else. Oh, it did. It did. I don't know that a saint alive now, a true child of God, who doesn't sometimes grieve over what they've done or failed to do and rendering help to others in time past or or showing gratitude for those who were so good to them and helped them or what they did in harming somebody else by engaging in some sinful acts. But the believer comes to realize against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. And we're made to cry, not as those who deserve something good from God, not as those who say, well, I've earned this or that. We come as beggars. That brings pride down, doesn't it? We come as beggars. God be merciful to me. A sinner. Then, then you're in the position of understanding that if you are to be saved by God's grace, God has to do all the saving. All the saving must be done by him. That's where this glorious, wondrous truth of justification through faith comes in Scripture. Those alone are justified, though, who possess the righteousness that divine grace bestows. Not what they work for, not what they earn, but what is bestowed by divine grace, and that alone, as in verse 24. Even the righteousness of God, or being justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, the saved are the justified. Only the saved are the justified. So justification is crucial to the divinely revealed gospel, to the gospel God gives in his word. Paul called those whom God has truly called and made his own the just. They are called the just 
He says in the first chapter, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The saved are called the just. But in this epistle of Romans, here in verse 24, this is the first time the verb justified is used in this epistle. Being justified freely by his grace. So what exactly is to be justified? What does it mean to be justified? Does it mean to make one righteous? Nope. It does not mean to make one righteous. Does it mean to treat them as righteous, though they're not so in themselves? No, that's not the meaning. The righteousness of God, which one must possess to be saved, and justification are not exactly the same. Though the one is not without the other. Justification is a legal term. Justification means that God acquits one from all charges against them. Justification means that they're not guilty. Well, how is that when we've sinned and come short of the glory of God? God yet acquits one of all the charges brought against them. <coughs> That's no little thing. The righteous judge acquits one of all the charges brought against them though they had committed the sins. In the eighth chapter of this epistle, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. It is God who declares one not guilty. And if God declares one not guilty, guess what? They're not guilty in his judicial sight. They have no sins in his judicial sight. It is the way one is justified. Declared not guilty, but righteous. That is the great thrust of Paul's teaching. The sinner. How can a sinner have a perfect righteousness that's accepted by God and on the basis of that perfect righteousness be declared not guilty, but righteous? Well, in order to be justified, you must have the righteousness of God. But how and when do the unrighteous obtain such a righteousness that God himself approves? That meets his perfect standard. 
Paul will show that it comes in a way and at a time different than any works-based salvation could ever produce. As a matter of fact, he teaches that works justify no one. No one is justified by what they do, what they perform. No one has anything to contribute to this justification by any merit whatsoever. The apostle declares in verse 20 of Romans 3, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. We read together this morning in Titus chapter 3 verse 5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. Anyone teaching that justification in any way comes by works opposes the clear revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Is it pretty serious? Is it serious? It's serious enough to subvert the souls of men. It's serious enough to deceive men. It's serious enough that when there were those who were teaching the Galatians that they couldn't be saved only by faith in Christ, they had to be saved by faith plus works, what did the Apostle Paul write to them and say? I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that pervert the gospel of Christ. He didn't mince any words. Let them be accursed. Pretty serious, the gospel. Pretty serious, the purity of the gospel as God gives it in his word. A works-based salvation is taught by some then that really the final verdict must await to the day of judgment. The Jews taught that salvation was by the works of the law. And you'd have to wait to the day of judgment. Later, Roman Catholicism taught that it's faith plus works that equal justification. And the more works, the more one is likely to be justified at the last judgment. Even many have arisen in the ranks of those we term Arminians. Those with a free will gospel. Teaching works as necessary to salvation and that one can actually lose their salvation according to how they make use of their, quote, free will. But according to the only scriptural gospel there is, the only saving gospel God gave, the gospel Paul gives us by divine inspiration contrary to all human reason God's verdict justifies the person now the very moment 
the very moment you savingly believe on Jesus Christ. The very moment you give up all thought of your own works or your own merit and trust in him alone. You're justified. Justified through faith. You're justified, as in Romans chapter 3, verse 28. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. What a wondrous thing when one comes to know and trust and rest only in Christ. That there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. <clears throat> so I'll give you the Word of God, for which you're responsible. Should you put it off? Should you delay coming to Christ? Should you delay looking in the sorrow of sin, to him alone who can save you. God says in Isaiah 1 18, Come now. Come now. And let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Come now. Let us reason together. And we listen to God. And his reason is Christ crucified. His son sent into this world to save sinners. And all of the sins, you know what? It's impossible for us to calculate our sins. It's impossible. They're more than what? They're more than the hairs of your head. I know I have a lot of few fewer hairs than I used to have, but I still couldn't care, count them. Might one day, the way things are going, but yeah, it's amazing. The hairs of your head, you can't count them. We can't count all our sins. There's some things, there's some things so bad that we remember them. There's something so bad it's hard to get out of your memory. Isn't that true? Isn't that so? But there are multitudes of sins that we don't even remember. That we commit as easy as drinking water. And yet God says, come now and let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. There is nothing like understanding, receiving, knowing, genuine cleansing and forgiveness of sin. God doesn't bring them again before his judicial court. They are put away as far as the east is from the west. Why will you die in sin? God says, come now.
Salvation is God's free gift. It's not earned. It's bestowed. It's the gift of God's grace and grace only and nothing else. Being justified freely by His grace. To be sure. Such a faith that unites you to Jesus Christ will lead you out of a genuine love for Him to work. But that's not the reason you're justified. Works have absolutely nothing to do with justification and salvation. Not what we do. It's what God has done. Not in our works. What in He has worked. And what is in our Lord. Apart from us, Christ died, rose again. And that's the only reason that we're called to look to Him only, to trust in Him alone. Grace means God will act alone. Grace is the will of God acting alone. It's out of a sovereign mercy. That's what we desperately needed. Freely given. It's not moved by anything outside of God himself. It is not contingent upon anything we do or shall ever do. Not of him that willeth. Nor of him that runneth. But of God that showeth mercy. The new birth is not something we bring about. New life which alone enables us to repent and believe. It's God's act. By his sovereign will. Of his own will beget us. With the word of truth. When the gospel is proclaimed, every saint ought to be crying to God. God, grant forth your power. Grant the power of your grace in the preaching of the word. Save, give life to those who are dead in sins and trespasses. We live in a gospel-hardened day, I fear, unless God in his mercy brings about an awakening. It can't be done by man. Man can bring forth some professions. He can move men emotionally. But he can't give new life. As many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God even to them which believe on his name, which were born. Not of flesh, not of blood, nor of the will of man, but of God. But this wondrous, present justification by faith in Jesus Christ alone, which is completely unmerited, is not without the greatest cost. being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption. Redemption. Redeemed. How I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. In redemption we are delivered. We are delivered 
from our old bondage to sin. We're delivered not because of something that arises in us. We're delivered because a ransom was paid. And the ransom was the blood of God's Son. The ransom was the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's by this redemption, because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, became so united to us, coming into this world, that he could take our place, that he could render a perfect righteousness that was required by the law of God. And then in uniting himself with us, he could die for our sins so that God can justify us. The sinner being declared not guilty. And give us, in our account, the very righteousness of Christ. And it's all by grace. It's by grace only. By grace alone. By free grace. By free justification. Done for us. Because we could never produce in ourselves and by ourselves a righteousness acceptable to God. We were absolutely without any strength to do so. But when we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. It all comes down to one thing. One thing only. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Blessed those who have a true understanding, who refuse to trust in themselves and anything in themselves, and look away only to Jesus Christ crucified and can sing, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I now not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. May God bless the ministry of his holy word.